This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode, we interview the marvelous rookie Newhold Ravi Kumar, the Director of Education for the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Ruki was in Seattle and sat down with us to discuss the amazing collection of artifacts and how design education is an opportunity to empower the process of creativity. Ruki Newhold Ravi Kumar, welcome to This Is Design School. Thank you so much for taking some time out and uh, talking with us. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you and I have a bit of a kismet spirit of how you got to where you are uh, by your experience, which is kind of similar to mine. So can you tell me a little bit about who you are? So I'm an educator. I've embraced that. I'm proud of it. It's where my voice is clearest. Um, I am presently the Director of Education at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, which has been a dream job, and it's lived up to that dream, too. Oh, I am so jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Before that, I was a professor of design for 14 years, and my last job uh, at my previous university was Associate Dean for College of Fine Arts and Design. And it's really interesting because... I did advance. I started as a as an assistant professor and you know, go through the whole tenure process. And I felt like I was advancing through that system. Uh, but when I reached the level of associate dean and it came to applying for the dean position, it was really an interesting moment because my wife and I were sitting and we had we were talking about all the applications that I had done. And out of the blue, she said, do you want to be a dean? No one had ever asked me that question before. And I really thought for that moment, I thought, no, um, because I love teaching. I love education. I love design. And at that moment, I felt so far away from all of that. And we, we have that moment of, you know, when you're a kid and people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And you think on a level that's amazing because you think of the person that impresses you and what's amazing to you. And you want to go to the moon because it seems like the furthest thing away and you want it at your fingertips. And the possibilities and are the out possibility, there. And you have no clue at that age what that job does, but it's amazing to you. And we don't do that as adults. And here I was sitting on our porch having that moment of if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And I had nothing to lose by just calling out things. And I thought to the last place where I felt deeply inspired. And that was when I had taken students on study tours and trips and found myself at the Cooper Hewitt. And that was the place where I just loved losing myself. It just felt so inspiring. And so I was telling her that I would love to work at a museum. So, of course, she went online, found a job, and told me the next day that there's this job and you'd be perfect for it. Of course, I laughed it off because as adults, we're all skeptical. Um, But I applied and here I am. So it's possible. 
that's so amazing. You know, I would, I feel very connected um, to that story because I have gone through that same experience. My partner, she has uh, done the same sort of thing. Like, oh look, here's something, and I always look at it, and I never take that next step. And it's always been myself that gets in the way of a potential dream come true. And so I'm excited to live vicariously now through you. <laughs> and it's such an inspiring place. Yeah. So I'm really happy to be there. So what is it that you do at the Cooper Hewitt? So we do a lot of things. Um, I think the Cooper Hewitt as America's design museum is uh, the museum collects historic and contemporary objects. But what makes my job really interesting is we have a clear but simple mission of inspire, educate, and empower people through design. And that's what my team gets to do. We get to connect people with the objects in the museum, the objects in the collection, and more than just the objects, the stories that go with them. We do that to spread design literacy, to spread a better understanding of what design is and really the power and value of design. And so that's what we do in a nutshell. But day to day, we, um, we connect with audiences of all ages and help them learn more about design and also to use the tools, the frameworks, um, the thinking processes of a designer and help them see how they can use it in their world. What's the difficulty about framing that when people walk into a museum and they see an object that they might have income like come across in their everyday life whether it be you know a blender a bicycle or a watch for instance oh, and they see it question. on they see it on display in a museum like how do you how do you bridge that gap between you know the objects we surround each other surround ourselves with every day and then seeing it in a museum and then using that as a bridge to talking about design that's a, it's a really great challenge to have because design's all around us. But when you ask a person what is design, um, you just get a blank stare for a while. Mm -hmm. Even designers sometimes struggle to articulate what is design in a clear way. And we tend to talk about design in its extremes when it's when it works really well and you have pride of ownership of something. You talk about beautiful design. And when something does not work at all, that's the other moment that we recall it. When a chair is uncomfortable, when the airport gates don't have enough power sockets, we immediately blame design. This, you know, who designed this thing? Mm -hmm. But it's all around us, and yet we have a hard time talking about it. And we see this at the museum. People walk in, um, and they're sometimes confused because they're surrounded by everyday objects. And they don't quite understand why it's in a museum. And what's interesting, though, is that we've taken that object out of the context that it was designed for. So that's the first challenge. Mm -hmm. You have a bicycle that's sitting on a display shelf, and it has to tell its story. Um, and so where I think our role really comes together is when we're able to interpret tell those stories and help people see that connection of why what they're looking at is the best example of how a designer solved a problem. And when they see that and they can relate to it, they get really 
interested. They turn into a design enthusiast in seconds. And for us, that's the great joy is when they start to appreciate and become more observant of the world that they live in. And they start to make connections almost instantly with they start to talk about oh I had a bicycle that way or I had a thing that did that or do you remember in the 80s when this happened you can see that they make those connections instantly and so that's the nice part about what we're able to do um, I think this is something designers and especially young designers are you know uh, struggle with is being able to tell the story of their own work right and so you know this is the solution I have and this is how it came about but thinking about almost taking that outside of the designer and putting it in a museum and using that as a use case to tell the story about design and I'm curious about how the museum goes about telling that story of the object so it's a multi-layered approach um, there's obviously the labeling which is the first interaction where you read and hear mm -hmm. about the story mm -hmm. of the exhibition. But what we get to do as an education team are to find a way for your story to connect with the object story. And that's really where we excel. Mm -hmm. um, we, two years ago, changed how we approach education. Because like a lot of museums, we had made the assumption that the child is somehow the beginner and the adult is somehow very advanced in their knowledge. Mm -hmm. But you can stand in that design museum for five minutes and you'll see several clueless adults. <laughs> and so how do we create an environment where people can identify their starting point and engage with us? So we created a competency model mm -hmm. where it's in three tiers. If you're a beginner, you can start at a friendly place. If you have a little bit of knowledge, we give you a more hands-on experience to connect with the object. And if you're a designer, there's still something for you to learn because as designers, we're always learning. Mm -hmm. And so we created more of that scaffolded approach. And so in our workshops, what we try to do is we put out the challenge that the designer might have had and we tell people, you solve it. And they will often solve it to the best of their ability. But then to walk that person through an exhibition and say, this is how the designer solved it, mm. that's a moment of excitement because they will find some things, they will feel validated because I also thought about that. Mm -hmm. And then there are moments where the designer took it so far that it blows your mind and then you get really impressed by what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's the moment where we try to connect people, their own stories with the object and its story as well. And I think that's a great approach for any designer to take, because I think that's where the authenticity of it comes in, your value and connection comes in. And it's a lot of times my advice to students as well is don't just talk about the thing as it's a separate thing from you, but how does it connect to you? and how did you come up with those ideas? And what were those points of connection that you made? Because the person next to you wouldn't have made those same connections. I'd like to expand a bit about that, yeah. um, to think about it as a design faculty member. Right. Um, something that I often tried to um, engage with students about is the experience that wh where they are in the history of design especially with the way that we think about graphic design now how do we capture those stories through portfolios or through projects or through the understanding of history that translates into 
what they're going to be doing. I think that's what I've loved about the Cooper Hewitt's collection is that there are over 210,000 objects in the collection, but they don't just collect the object. They collect the process that goes with it. So as educators, we are able to show um, from the very first squiggle on a sheet of paper all those non-precious parts that no one will ever see we equate it to the bulk of an iceberg, how you the object is just the tip of it, but there's so much of the bulk that you don't get to see, but that's the part that helps you understand why the end result looks the way it does. Um, and for us to be able to show those in our programs and have people see that it's, we have this perception with creative professionals that they're just naturally talented and an idea comes to mind and poof, the product happens the next day. And I think we work in educational institutions to really pull out that process and make that process be visible and museums do that as well. And I know that we've worked very hard as educators to make that part of students' portfolios, too, is we often say, don't just show the final piece, show your sketches, bring your sketchbook to an interview. I think that's valuable so people can see what kinds of connections were made, what were those points where you went a different direction, what influenced that, um, and the number of ideas you explored before arriving at the final one. So I think process has become such a critical part of our world. Um, I do sometimes hesitate, though, because uh, when we open up so much of our process, I feel like we are very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, think about when you go to a doctor's office. Have you ever discussed the process of diagnosis with them? Yeah. We just sort yeah, of accept exactly. their yeah. word. We take the prescription, we go fill it out, and we swallow that pill. We don't say, how did you arrive at this particular diagnosis, and what was the methodology you used, and can you tell me what key moment you made a connection that led you to diagnosing me with this? We don't do that. We just trust. We don't have that trust for designers somehow. We, we want to see that whole process. So I hope as we go into the future that we tell those stories, but those stories serve to empower what we do and not to create points of vulnerability and lack of trust in what we do. Do you feel that they have been able to empower people to continue that exploration from an object to uh, or a sketch or you know I know that the collection has a variety of things from sketches all mm -hmm. the way to final production absolutely I think it we see it in educational programs when people look at the entire process for them the value of that piece is instantly it's it's elevated um, we find designers are inspired by looking at other designers processes and we find that people who don't have a connection to design start to deeply appreciate what they look at. In our programs, we talk about how there's a difference between being creative and being a creative professional. And there's a quote, uh, I think it's a tweet, by Bill Murray from years ago, where he said, every Olympic event should have an average person competing for reference. Hmm. Um, and that's we use that to explain it, because we get caught up in the Olympics with people competing at a second-to-second -second difference. And if you had an average person running there, you'd see just how much ahead of the game they are. Uh -huh. I feel the same way about creative professionals, is 
everyone can be creative, but what makes that person the professional is the time, the practice, the commitment, the mental bandwidth they've dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference yeah. right there. Yeah. And I think that's what the process stories at the Cooper Hewitt's collection do, mm-hmm. is they show a collective of all these design professionals and what their practice footage looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, will be of value to all of us. I was curious if you had a specific example of what what an object was like that before. Yeah, um, there is a case study that we use in our educational programs a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Bradley timepiece by E1. Mm. And it's a really great story because the designers started with a very different uh, challenge question. Mm-hmm. They were motivated to make a braille watch for people who were blind or low vision. But as they um, built their prototypes and tested it, they learned that there are a large population of people who are blind and low vision who cannot read Braille. Mm-hmm. So they instantly lost a large portion of their audience. Yeah. And as they explored it further, they changed. Mm-hmm. Well, that was kind of one of the main tenets of universal design. Is Absolutely, that, yeah. You know, if you make it accessible for the margins, then it's actually useful for everyone. Right. Yeah. In relation to design literacy, which you had mentioned uh, a little bit ago, um, I have a fascination with how the 21st century uses design or design thinking uh, as a way of solving problems, especially with big data and the use of information uh, in politics, in everyday life, in in what have you. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that we are doing as design educators in spreading that literacy, not just for higher education, but perhaps to the K-12 systems or beyond the K-12 system, beyond the higher ed system, especially as a Cooper Hewitt sees such a swath of people. So I don't think we're doing a great job. Uh, I do think the playing field is not level right now for access to design and design education. Yeah. We go into schools around the country and we see that it's, it's not part of the curriculum, and oftentimes it's not part of even the conversation in those communities. We talk about how diversity is an issue in our various fields of design, but actually we have to look at where that problem, it's not just a hiring problem, it's bringing people into the field to begin with problem. And we need to put a lot more effort into that. I think what's it's doable, though, because if you look at um, even communities that don't have um, a lot of access to design, there are resourceful people everywhere. They find ways to hack the world around them to solve problems creatively. Yeah. It's just people have never told them it's design. You know, I think about my earliest memory of problem solving is not um, something that I'm necessarily solve the problem the best way but um, you'll probably get a laugh out of the story but I had as a 10 year old I had a spring bed and I was jumping up and down on it and broke it as we all do that's funny I broke my grandmother's around that age yeah (laughs) and you know when you break a spring bed 
you know you're going to get into trouble. It's not one something you can hide easily because it makes such a horrific sound. Uh, it's just deafening, that boing sound that it makes. So, of course, I had to fix my problem. And my solution was to take a sock, roll it into a ball, and make a soft landing spot for the broken spring. Well, months later when we moved, my dad discovered this ball and asked me what it was because it just looked so ridiculous. And I explained that I broke the bed, the spring was making a noise, and so I muffled the sound. And he instantly told me I would either be a genius or a moron um, because I solved the problem for sound. I didn't think to tie it up. Um, but it made me instantly, he started to talk to me about how, you know, what was the problem and why did I decide that that was my problem to solve. If we had that kind of conversation with people about why did you do that or how did you do that or what was the best way to solve that problem, there would be more critical creative thinkers out there. But at some point, you know, we, we separate that kind of thinking from curriculum in schools and we don't find points of connection. And this is a great time to do that as more schools embracing STEM and STEAM design as that common thread where we can actually connect to real world things and help people see that when they're learning with the circumference of a circle as they can connect it to something in the real world and build that literacy faster. So I really think design has that capacity and that's why we are so committed to going into schools nationally, getting teachers to be design literate and infusing more design conversations, irrespective of what the discipline is, because it will be the unifier. It will also be the way for people to build just a mindset to match the world around them. I think it also helps with the understanding that failure is uh, is part of the process and not a conclusion that l learning for instance like in your story that you solved the problem of noise but not the problem of the spring um, that's okay you know you learned yeah. something valuable from that and and that could be considered perhaps a failure of solving the spring problem but you learned something to expand even further out you know, I think of it less as failure because I hate to tell someone, like, brace yourself for failure. Like, no one does that. No one prepares for failure. Uh, but I think it speaks very much to our resilience and our ability to work within a constraint. And I think that's the, the powerful part is when something doesn't work, we don't instantly give up because in the nature of our creative process is we didn't start out with one idea. We never do. And no, people don't realize that we start out with the reason a design school process has the hundred thumbnail type of activity is because we have a backup plan for a backup plan for a backup plan that we have multiple ideas to work through. And if one does not work, so be it we go back and are able to find something else. And it often works to our benefit because the thing failed for a reason and we failed faster than anyone else. So we get to the successful solution quicker. So I think that's the neat part that we can pass on um, in our education systems, irrespective of the field. And I think the more important part is that we design for people. 
And we forget that often, that idea of empathy, that you don't just design for yourself all the time. You are very aware of the other person's needs and use and intentions. And that's what really makes truly successful design solutions is when you've thought all of those things through. You know, what classes in schools today are having a quality conversation about empathy? But if design were worked in and we talked about design stories in there, that would come up. We would very quickly learn about they had five different ideas. This one didn't work for the people and here's why. And so they went to plan B or C. I think that's where I really see that we have so much potential with design in the classroom. I like that. I'm wondering how does someone like me who lives hundreds and thousands of miles away uh, engage with the Cooper Hewitt to tell those stories? Is, is there resources or, or is it accessible um, from, a, from a far distance? It absolutely is. And I think for people who always say, oh, I've been to your museum, it's in New York, they've only scraped the surface because an exhibition is just the starting point. Almost our entire collection is digitized, so most people can access objects and research them from far away. Um, We show people how to use the website as a research and a resource tool as an education team because we've built lots of different ways where you can truly lose yourself in the collection to enjoy the process of discovery often with research we take such a serious position on it that we forget that the joy of it is actually to discover to go down that rabbit to hole to go down yes yeah. where you find things you didn't expect <laughs> like that's what research is supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, not where you make a plan and go from point a to point b in the end and so losing yourself in such a vast collection and learning the stories and looking at you know if you stumbled upon an object and it's pink but made in the 80s what else was made in the 80s at the same time what other objects are pink of the same value to have that kind of process where you can lose yourself the website allows you to do that the collection site does Um, and there's so many more resources that you can really connect with the cooper hewitt and the smithsonian through online Mm -hmm. Um, and we we don't think people use that enough so i'm hoping that our team can help people see the potential there. We have a platform called the Learning Lab where you can search the databases in the entire Smithsonian, so the 19 Smithsonian museums, the nine research centers in the zoo. And if you did a search on a regular search engine versus there, you'd see the difference Mm -hmm. because you'd see that in the Learning Lab, you'd get a range of resources from... Now, we show a common example of when you search the word frog. Um, you get every painting that has a frog, how the zoo has frog cages, um, articles on species from the science uh, research centers, the breadth of resources that you get. So then you can make truly interesting connections because you're not getting the same type of resource over and over again. Um, and the neat thing about that tool is you can it sort of simulates the exhibition processes so you can collect what you're looking at save it and create it build sort of a format for you to share with other people that sounds so futuristic (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we put so much pressure on um, how we need disruptors today, mm. and everyone needs to be innovative, but we aren't talking about how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're in your school classrooms, we don't teach people how to generate multiple ideas. We just say, you know, they're, we give them a, a very defined problem and then they reach for that solution. But if that's what we're expecting, then how we teach, what we teach, how we inspire, that has to change. So museums can be such vital partners in that learning, discovery, and inspiration process. I really think, uh, I feel like I'm case in point because I've used my design training and education to solve almost any kind of problem. Um, All the different roles that I've had, um, I've always approached it with the mindset that a designer would because it's how I know how to make it a manageable problem. So you take it apart and you think about what is the framework, who is, who's my audience. So even in areas where I've been so out of my depth and out of my comfort zone, the point of comfort has been to think it through like a design problem because mm-hmm. that framework is so versatile. When you start to do that, it suddenly feels more manageable. You know, my previous roles of managing people or time or money or complex processes. I don't have training in doing that, but I found that my training as a designer um, gave me the confidence to take that on because if we are solving problems of access of water in a developing nation, surely I can figure out how to work the Excel spreadsheet, you know? (laughs) So that it sort of gives me a certain confidence, um, crazy or otherwise, that I, I really think my training in education and design yeah. gives me that I haven't seen with too many of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yes, it definitely gives you that sense of managing your fear better. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So at the beginning of our conversation, we talked a little bit about this idea of when we're young, we're so imaginative and we don't always think of all the barriers that could exist between ourselves and being an astronaut or dreaming of all the things that could be from your perspective working in the museum every day oftentimes you know we're thinking about like looking at objects that have been designed and it's like thinking about the past and with the intent that you're making people think towards the future what do you think is the next step or what would you wish for the designers and and makers of tomorrow. What do you think is the next step in design or the next needed thing? So the museum, even though I think we have the, there's the perception that the museum focuses on stories of the past, Mm -hmm. the Cooper Hewitt is truly a museum of the future because a lot of the exhibitions ask very um, provocative questions about where we're heading as people and as designers, and what are the problems of the future. Um, We have looked at things like, if all our vehicles are autonomous, what does that do to the city? And where does designer responsibility come in? Shouldn't we be thinking about sustainability more? How many objects are we putting out into the world? Um, Who are we designing for? When we say social impact and good, who's good? how are we defining some of those? And so 
it's a great place for us to learn from the lessons of the past but definitely to ask better questions as we go into the future um, there are so many things that we're dealing with today from climate change to other social crises there were unintended consequences and we're trying to we're, we're in a reactive place right now i think trying to solve for problems that we unintentionally created but if the designers of today could think about that just a little bit more mm -hmm. and we thought about all the potential consequences so if we used a certain material what does that material evolve to or what is what are its worst consequences maybe we will get to a different place in the future than the reactive place that we are right now. I think those are the quality, uh, th that's the kind of conversation I enjoy at the museum is we're really thinking about the impact of design, not just today, but the potential of the future. Well, Ruki, we, um, as we close, we like to ask these um, little quick fire questions. Sure. Uh, we call it the recommendation list. <laughs> Would you be okay if I ask you a couple of recommendations? Sure. Okay. Yeah. You travel a lot. I'm wondering if you have a, a good travel tip for me. I'm starting to do a lot of travel with my sabbatical. Any, any uh, travel tips from an expert? I would say travel with your eyes wide open. Um, because one, it keeps you from tripping. But <laughs> two, I think we um, get so caught up in books and magazines and um, tablets and devices that we often forget to just look around us. Um, even when we travel, we're so keen on taking a picture of things that we forget to actually look at the real thing that we're in such a visual and designed world we could all just take a moment and hone our observation skills because that will last with us longer than that picture will. Cool, I like that. What would be the best thing for a kid to learn design with? Like a project or uh, interaction with some sort of um, device or apparatus or what have you? What would you suggest? I think with kids, what we enjoy doing are giving them really outrageous problems. Because if we get too functional and too practical at that age, then we've already kind of crushed that I want to go to the moon mentality. That at that age, I think, why not solve for crazy problems? Because if you think about it, the problems we have today are pretty crazy. You know, and if we get people into that mindset of really solving for things that don't exist, I think we'd be in a much more exciting future. Um, to give you an example, we had an, had an exhibition called Senses Design Beyond Vision at the museum, and we challenged kids to design utensils to eat things that you wouldn't think about, like clouds and Velcro. And it was amazing to see that they didn't challenge that problem at all. They just ran with it. And the things that they came up with, I think actually could have practical applications for other things. You could modify sure, those yeah. solutions. But it came from a place of complete um, wild imagination. And so that my advice would be less about tools and more about the kinds of problems we're putting out there. Yeah. 
Well, I'm also, I'm always interested in knowing what people are reading. So, um, what do you think is a, a piece of, of writing as that you've read as of late that you think hasn't been widely read enough? I read a lot. Um, I like to, I don't like to read on a single topic at any mm. given time. Um, I read a lot of biographies. I like to, um, you know, read what's going on that's relevant to today's society a little bit. Um, I read a lot of magazines, too, and just to get kind of the quick brain thinking about a quick idea quickly. But I have to say that um, I like to read comics. Mm. Um, I have learned more from Calvin and Hobbes than I have from reading (laughs) The Art of War. Mm. Uh, because Calvin and Hobbes makes you think about how are you really looking at the world Mm -hmm. and it challenges you to see things that you aren't always observant because the way Calvin sees things are it's it really challenges you and so I like to compare and you know have something that balances my reading out so I highly recommend Calvin and Hobbes at least revisiting it. There's a great volume that has everything compiled. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Watterson's work, too. And I think what I enjoy about that is a, there's a little bit of his process in there. And it's his Batman drawings when he was a seven-year-old or eight-year-old and how some of that influenced his drawing later. Really? Um, so right now, I think I'm a little caught up in Bill Watterson's process of Calvin and Hobbes. A book I think that's blown my mind recently is Cat Holmes' Mismatch. Mm. Um, it's a really great book on inclusive design. Um, so I'm reading that, too. Uh, best food to eat on the road. Uh, best food to eat on the road. That's interesting. Because we're on the road a lot. Um, I don't know. I like to pick things that are local to that place because it, it's just, for me, it's, it's part of the experience. So I try not to have the one comfort thing um, as you're walking by. Usually the packaging is what draws me in, and oh, yeah, sometimes yeah. I regret those decisions. But um, I like to pick on something that's, that's local to that place. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great one. I like that. Well, Ruki, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it and um, look forward to interacting more with the Cooper Hewitt. And hopefully uh, you'll enjoy Seattle a little bit more. And we'll see you around some other time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This was such a joy. Yep. Thank, thank you. you. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This Is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.